got a mystery for you. Around 1508 in Florence, Italy, Leonardo, the artist, not the Ninja Turtle, Leonardo da Vinci of Mona Lisa fame, sketched an anatomical study of the female genitalia. Now, this was a guy who was renowned, even in his own day, for being a genius of the human form. His realism was unparalleled among artists. Now, his sketch shows just the pelvic region of a woman, and at the focal point of his study, the vulva, there is just a big, dark, gaping tunnel. It's like a featureless cave, like an elementary school boy would draw. And around it, the labia form a rounded oval ridge enclosing darkness, as if to say, here be dragons. And above this mysterious lady cave, there is a suggestion of pubic hair, but nothing even remotely resembling a clitoris. Now what the Florence is going on here? Remember, this guy was famed for his anatomical knowledge. His studies of ligaments and tendons show attention to detail that we are only today beginning to surpass. And yet, he draws this. So here's the mystery for you. Did Leonardo da Vinci, master of the human form, really not know about the clit? But that's not all. This drawing is what the vaginamuseum.at, a website that is a virtual museum for the female sex, calls the first complete picture of the female sexual organ unique for its time. Wait, what? So this was advanced for its day? So then, does that mean this is not just about da Vinci? Could it be that nobody in Renaissance Italy knew about the clit? Well, in order to solve this mystery, we are going to dive deep into the past today, from ancient days all the way up to the Renaissance. The history of the clitoris is a bizarre story of discovery, forgetting, and rediscovery. That's what we're talking about today on the history of sex. <laughs> History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I'd like to thank our Patreon patron, Ray Hicks, for making this episode possible. I'd also like to thank listener Riley Irvin for help in preparing this episode. Let me tell you folks, I am mystified by this drawing. Leonardo da Vinci, the guy who gave us the Vitruvian Man, you know, the one with the man inside a circle standing with limbs both straight down and outstretched, that guy, he doesn't seem to have had a clue about female anatomy. Now you can see the drawing for yourself in the episode post on our website at historyofsexpod.com or at the Royal Collection Trust. It is called Vulva and Anus, and it was drawn in pen and ink over black chalk around the year 1508. Art historian Kenneth David Keel 
describes the drawing. The main drawing occupying the upper part of this sheet depicts the vulva in what would appear to be a multiparous woman after childbirth. Multiparous means having born multiple children. The labia spread widely apart show no evidence of a hymen, labia minora, or clitoris. The urethral orifice anteriorly appears unduly prominent and the corrugated transverse rugae of the widely opened vagina are clearly shown. Rugae means ridges, referring to the folds of the labia. So Kiel interprets this as a woman after childbirth, so that explains the wide and gaping quality of the depiction, but it doesn't shed any light on why there is no peak at the top, not even a little vertical line or bump or anything whatsoever that could possibly be intended to represent the clitoral hood or the clitoral glands. Quite to the contrary, Da Vinci's labia just continues right around the top with no break like a continuous spaghettio enclosing the vagina. So let's break down how this could possibly be that Da Vinci missed the clit. There are several possible initial explanations that leap to mind. I mean, first of all, was this even really a Da Vinci drawing? And the answer to that one is... Yes, it is legit. It's contained in the Royal Library at Windsor Castle. It's verified by experts. It's legit. Okay, so it's a real da Vinci, sure. But was he actually trying to depict anatomy, or was this just a mindless doodle? You know, the equivalent of drawing a stick figure with boobs on the bathroom wall. Well, it's clearly not as detailed as some of his studies, but it is accompanied by a whole page of notes in his trademark mirror script, you know, written backwards, like you do. And there are flower-like diagrams with the petals labeled with letters, like he's making a very clear architectural point about the structure under study. And that makes sense in the context of his life as well. See, da Vinci had already been interested in anatomy for about two decades by this point, and would shortly become immersed in a project that he hoped to publish as a book of anatomy. This drawing was meant to be published as an anatomical diagram. It's no doodle. Now, the book project did fall through and was never published, but da Vinci's sketches remain. This drawing was intended for the opening chapter on the reproductive system, and he appears to have gone back to it subsequently, and sketched another in slightly greater detail. And you can see some ridges and irregularities in the walls of the vaginal canal this second time, and the overall shape of the labia is now a teardrop coming to a more accurate peak at the top, but there's still nothing to suggest an actual clitoris, even in this second drawing. His book of anatomy would have been clitless. So, in short, yes, da Vinci definitely intended this drawing to be accurate to the best of his ability. Okay, fine, so it's a legit da Vinci and he was legit trying to show lady bits, but maybe he censored himself out of deference to the taboos of the day or something like that. Um, no. This was not a guy who would bow to taboos. This was a guy who dissected corpses in order to gain anatomical mastery. And dissection was strictly forbidden by the church at the time. So he had to do it in secret, covertly, risking his mortal soul for knowledge. I mean, this guy was a regular Faust. 
he claimed to have dissected some 100 bodies over the course of his life, and he even wrote about the grotesque deed, telling aspiring students what it takes, quote, But though possessed of an interest in the subject, you may perhaps be deterred by natural repugnance, or, if this does not restrain you, then perhaps by the fear of passing the night hours in the company of these corpses, quartered and flayed, and horrible to behold. So, yeah, da Vinci was not the kind of guy to bow to social taboos. He surrounded himself with flayed corpses, horrible to behold. He would not have censored the female genitalia out of some bashful sense of propriety. Okay, so it's a real da Vinci really trying to depict something without reserve. So, what's going on here? Why is this structure so arcane? Well, there are a few other explanations that I have heard. One is that his depictions of internal organs were never really that accurate. And yes, that's true. His drawing of the uterus, for example, is just a spherical acorn with a baby inside. But the clitoris is not an internal structure. It's an external one, and da Vinci was top-notch at external near-surface structures like muscles, tendons, ligaments, that sort of thing. He should have been an ace at depicting something as externally visible as the clitoris. Now, side note, recent MRI scans have revealed quite a vast internal structure to the clitoris, but right now we are only concerning ourselves with what's visible from the outside. Da Vinci should have been able to see that and depict it quite accurately. Now, another explanation that I've heard is that da Vinci was gay. They wouldn't have thought of it that way at the time, but it is probably true that he took male lovers. And if that is in fact true, he might not have had female lovers to study. But I don't buy that as an explanation for this, because you don't need lovers in order to study a figure. He, I mean, he could have asked a female friend, I mean, perhaps even more easily than asking a lover. A lover might have felt the need to show, like, modesty and bashfulness. But a female friend, you know, especially for her gay BFF, uh, you know, perhaps might have felt more open to model for him in secret. Or, of course, there's always paying a prostitute to model for you, which many artists of the time actually did. So being a guy who prefers other dudes would not have stopped him from understanding female anatomy. And another thing, it, it wouldn't have stopped him from dissecting a female corpse, which brings me to the final unsatisfying explanation that I've heard. Female corpses were harder to come by than male ones because you were largely limited to unclaimed bodies. Claimed bodies, people would have gotten pretty upset about, and you would have gotten burned at the stake real fast. But unclaimed bodies, the risk was still there, but, you know, it was much less. And unclaimed bodies at the time were mostly drunks and vagrants, and they were largely male. Hence, it was difficult to come by a female corpse that you could dissect. Okay, sure. But you don't need a corpse. Again, you could get a live model to show you her stuff. I mean... It just really seems to me like da Vinci actually didn't know about the clit. He didn't even think to pay attention to this spot which, to women at least, is ever so crucial. So why not? 
I mean, you would think others would have clued him in, right? I mean, wouldn't this guy's friends tease him for not knowing how to please a woman? Or wouldn't his girlfriends, you know, slip him a tip? Unless maybe no one in Renaissance Italy knew about the clit. But how could that be? I mean, wouldn't women at the very least find their own button pretty darn quick? I mean, whatever feels good, you tend to find real fast. That's just human nature. I think that women throughout history would have found their spot, but they might not have had a word for it. They might just know, ooh, right there, that's it. X marks the spot. And if they lived in a culture that discouraged talk of such things, which Renaissance women did live in such a culture, well, then maybe that knowledge which they would gain from exploring their own bodies would not get passed on to the next woman. Individual women might repeatedly rediscover the clit on themselves, but the culture as a whole might still remain in the dark. Hmm. But... If no one in Italy knew about the clit, then that just adds another layer of mystery because previous eras definitely did know about it. The ancient Greeks and Romans, for example, they wrote about it. Well, if that's true, then how does a whole culture that knew about the clit manage to forget a thing like that? All right, I think at this point it is time that we backed up, way up, and explored the history of the clitoris from ancient days and onward. So that's what we're going to talk about next. But first, we'll take a short break, and we'll be back after this. Folks, if you're pumped to learn more about Leonardo da Vinci, why not check out an audiobook on Audible? Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. For example, you can check out Leonardo da Vinci, a biography of history's most famous polymath by Ryan Hawkins. Or, if you want a broader sense of the times, how about The Renaissance by Pulitzer Award-winning historian Will Durant, chronicling the history of Italy from 1304 to 1506. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash btnewberg. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash btnewberg for your free audiobook. And now, The History of Sex presents... This. I'm telling you, Scully, I know what I saw. Mulder, to say that women have a hitherto unknown organ, it's crazy. There's nothing to support it. It was right there, a bump the size of a peanut right above the sexual organs. Maybe it was a scar, a birthmark. It could have been anything. Listen to me, Scully, this thing exists. But how do you- It's a conspiracy to conceal the truth, and I'm going to find out what's at the bottom of it. But if she has one, then maybe I have one, and... <sighs> Trust no one, Mr. Mulder. All right, we're back. Now, it's time to go all the way back to the ancient world to solve the mystery of the missing clitoris. This is the history of clitorisy. 
The farthest back that we can go in the historical record, that is, the written record, is ancient Mesopotamia, because that's when writing began. So, as mentioned in a previous episode, the Akkadian phrase nishi libi, or lifting the heart, refers to a man's ability to unfailingly carry his female partner to orgasm. Now, that suggests that men must have had a pretty decent understanding of the most crucial pleasure zone. I mean, admittedly, that is a bit of bold speculation on my part, but it seems reasonable. And to bolster that supposition, add to this the fact that for the ancient Mesopotamians, the focus of allure on the female body was not the breasts, not the butt, but the vulva itself. I mean, erotic poetry is quite forthright about it. Who will plow my vulva? Who will plow my wet ground? Is the line that we heard previously. In sculpture of the time, is quite forthright as well. You know how Renaissance art often shows nude women with a hand just ever so slightly covering up the pubic area? Well, ancient Mesopotamian figurines can be found in almost the exact same pose, but with the woman's hand not covering up, but rather actually pointing right at her vajayjay, calling attention directly to it. It was the focus of desire in their culture. There was nothing immodest about it. Rather, it was the center of attention. And with that much attention focused on it, it's hard to believe that people wouldn't study it in great detail and find out all of its sensual secrets. Ancient Mesopotamians were, in my opinion, most likely woke to the clit. But if you want more certain evidence, okay, fine, let's scoot along to ancient Greece then, because they wrote about it. The famed physician Hippocrates, born around 450 BCE, actually referred to it with a term. He called it the columella, or little column. Now, notably, in the Hellenistic period following Alexander the Great's conquests, anatomists did in fact dissect human bodies, at least for a little while before taboo overwhelmed that practice. So, just like da Vinci, they were cutting up bodies to learn about anatomy. And by this practice, they came to understand the circulatory system, the respiratory system. We have no direct evidence of a systematic examination of the female's sexual organs, but then again, we've lost most of what they knew at that time, and between the burning of the Library of Alexandria and a whole other series of tragedies. So who knows, maybe they studied the little columella as well. Okay, so that was Greece, so now moving on to the Roman times. In Roman times, the popular masses referred to the clitoris by the vulgar term landica, or censor. Censor with a C, you know, like a holy water censor. And this word may derive from the Latin term glans, same as our word in English, but, you know, this is where it comes from, from Latin. Glans means acorn in Latin, and landica may derive from that. So it's like a little acorn. Or it may derive from the Latin word lambo, meaning I lick, again makes sense in terms of the clitoris. So in ancient times, they had both this vulgar word, landica, used by the Roman masses who spoke Latin, and they also had a more academic term taken from Greek because Greek was kind of the language of learning, this word columella, if you wanted to be respectable about it. They totally knew about, they talked about, they made jokes about the clitoris. They were woke to the clit. 
And they were also well-versed in things that go along with knowledge of the clitoris, like oral sex on women, cunnilingus. Although often when it came up, it was actually to denounce the practice. See, Roman men considered it an insult to their masculinity to go down on a woman. As we've heard before on this show, sex in the ancient world was all about who penetrated who, and a real man, quote-unquote, should always be the active partner penetrating a passive feminine partner, whether that partner was actually male or female or something else. Now, for Romans, even oral sex was viewed in this way, and fellatio, don't worry, we'll get to cunnilingus in a second, but fellatio was seen as the male properly penetrating the female, even though you would think, isn't she actually the active player in this act? But that's not how they saw it. Felicia was the masculine one penetrating the feminine one. And by analogy, cunnilingus was seen as the opposite, penetration of the masculine by the feminine. And that was absolutely unacceptable for them. That was a no-no. Roman men did not go below the belt. However, eunuchs did, and probably others who didn't care as much about the ample scorn heaped upon them for doing so. Anyway, my point is that cunnilingus, which is largely focused on clitoral stimulation, was well known in the Roman world, so that is further evidence that they knew about the clitoris. Meanwhile, across the Mediterranean, it appears that the Egyptians were also aware of the clitoris. This part's a little more hard to swallow because it has to do with female circumcision. The geographer Strabo wrote in 25 BCE about the Egyptians, One of the customs most zealously observed among the Egyptians is this, that they rear every child that is born and circumcise the males and excise the females. So yeah, the Egyptians were surgically messing with the clitoris. Now, whether they were just removing the clitoral hood or the entire clitoris, either way, it's a dangerous procedure, harmful to the health of the woman, and it is usually referred to as female genital mutilation today, a whole complicated and thorny issue that maybe we can do an episode on someday, but we'll leave that for another time. Anyway, this shows that the Egyptians as well were totally aware of the structure under their surgical scalpel. Now, also on the subject of the Egyptians, here is a fun tidbit for you. There is a legend that claims that Cleopatra had a vibrator made for herself consisting of a box that was filled with buzzing bees. <laughs> I know, right? Apparently, she would hold it against herself, and the vibrations created from the buzzing bees were what made the pleasure. Now, I highly doubt that this is true, but whoever told the story must have had some notion that vibratory stimulation of an external part of the female anatomy could produce pleasure. I mean, a box cannot be inserted like a dildo, so this story cannot be understood as vaginal pleasure. It can only be understood as clitoral pleasure. And this implies that the popular masses who likely passed on this spurious tale must have understood what was going on down there. However, popular understanding doesn't always translate to academic understanding. In fact, often the two can be quite different. And this can be a great virtue when the masses are wrong. But in other cases, well, 
See, in the second century CE, the great academic physician Galen decided that the clitoris, or the columella as he would have called it, did not exist. See, he had gotten it into his head that the male and the female genitalia were mirror images of each other, and the clitoris, well, it just didn't fit that model. He declared, All the parts, then, that men have, women have too, the difference between them lying only in one thing, namely, that in women the parts are within, whereas in men they are outside. Now, where is the clitoris in this description? Nowhere. The elegant symmetry of Galen's mirror images model dazzled him into denying its existence. After all, if the vagina is essentially an inside-out and upside-down penis, well then the pleasurable part, as for the male, must be along the length of it and at its head or mouth, i.e. at the point of insertion. Now the idea that the point of greatest pleasure could be above and entirely outside the vaginal canal altogether, why that simply makes no sense at all. Pish-posh, poppycock, it cannot be so, or so went Galen's reasoning. Now this idea was taken up by his students, and in fact, his prestige was such that whole schools of physicians came to doubt the columella. Fortunately though, the Galenites were not the only game in town. Physicians in the tradition of Hippocrates continued to recognize the clitoris, and that's generally how things went throughout much of medical history. If you were Team Galen, you doubted the clitoris. If Team Hippocrates, you acknowledged it. That's kind of how it went. Despite Galen's influence, right up until the end of late antiquity, you could still find scattered references to the clit. For example, the 6th century Greek physician Etios of Amida refers once again to Egyptians practicing female circumcision, and also remarks that female orgasm may be necessary to conception. Quote, If in the coitional act itself, he means sex, she notices a certain tremor, she is pregnant. Now this idea that orgasm may be necessary to conceive a child suggests attention to female pleasure, which in turn suggests a likely understanding of the clitoris, even if this understanding of conception of children is totally wrong. And by the way, this is going to come back in our next section. So this brings us to the end of ancient history. In summary, the evidence for knowledge of the clitoris in the ancient world is fairly robust. As we move into the medieval period now, though, the picture gets a bit foggier. With the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the late 6th century, we have very little written evidence to go on. Latin literature is greatly reduced. It was not quite a dark age, as they used to call it, but it was dark enough. So we don't know exactly what was going on in the bedroom during that time in the West. Meanwhile, over in the Eastern Roman Empire, or what historians call the Byzantine Empire, we have a somewhat better understanding. There are indications of at least a vague continuing understanding of female anatomy. For example, church commentaries discussing practices that were to be banned ask whether a priest may celebrate the liturgy after defiling his lips, quote-unquote. Now, Balsamon the Chartophylax, great name I know, expounds upon this idea. 
What exactly defiles his lips? Some say it is when a man has committed the sin of passionately and erotically kissing a woman. Others say that people who are passionately inflamed by sexual fire use female genitals as a drinking cup and, oh, the desecration, drink from it that abominable drink, thereby defiling their lips. Others say that some, driven mad by sexual lust, actually rain kisses on the female shameful part, and they are not ashamed. And Balsaman goes on to note various names for a woman's bits, including myrtle lips, drop-offs, and flaps. Finally, he says that, Many who write erotic songs say that these parts gape and spit at you and grow large when placed on a tongue. Hmm, so is this then a reference to cunnilingus? It certainly seems like it is. And the part that grows large when placed on a tongue, well, that kind of seems like it may refer to the clitoris. Thus, it seems reasonable to suppose that the Byzantines, or at least the sinners, quote-unquote, among them, still knew what a clit was. At the same time, the flower of ancient knowledge was actually carried on not so much in the Byzantine as in the Muslim world, which was experiencing its golden age at the time. In medieval Arabic literature, the clitoris was referred to as the bazar, B-A-Z-R. This word has fallen out of use in modern Arabic, but that is what they called it in classical Arabic. And despite what we may tend to think today about Islam, at the time, hitting the bazar was not considered as naughty as you might expect. As in the ancient world, sex was seen as penetration, so clitoral stimulation was actually not really seen as sex per se. Thus, women pleasuring each other in this way was not really threatening to men and was relatively socially acceptable at that time. And the word for same-sex female love comes from the root verb sahak or sihak, uh, it's S-H-Q, and it means to rub or pound. And women who practice this were called sihaka, or those who rub, those who pound, and it's actually often translated as grinders. <laughs> That's right, women who loved other women were grinders. And no doubt such grinders found the buzzer right quick, and without much taboo against it either. Thus, it seems that the clitoris was likely well known to medieval Islamic culture. And the bazar even shows up in medieval Islamic slam battles. That's right. One way to insult a rival was to call them a Yamas Bazar Umihi. Now, I know I'm totally butchering that pronunciation, but what it means is a sucker of one's mother's clitoris. Or, more colorfully put, a mother sucker. Calling someone a mother sucker was an insult pretty close to what it makes you think of in English. And you could even use this in the imperative, as in umsus bazar umihi, or go suck your mother's clit. So there you go. Clearly, the clitoris was common knowledge in the medieval Muslim world, common enough that it was even used in slam battles. Now, when the Crusades came along, I could just picture Arab soldiers defending the walls, raining insults down on these dirty, smelly, western mother suckers. However, 
those crusaders, even if they could understand Arabic, probably would not have understood the reference because it seems something funky had been going on back home during this time, or rather something not funky. In the time since the Western Roman Empire fell, it seems the West may have forgotten funky town altogether. Knowledge of the clitoris may have been lost in the West. See, when crusaders brought Arabic scholarship back with them to the West, a funny thing happened. The Arabic term for the clitoris, bazar, was transliterated into Latin as bodadera or batharum, or in some cases it was translated as tentigo, meaning tension or lust, or virga, meaning rod. Now, here's the weird thing. Why would they do that when Latin already had a word for the clitoris? The Roman masses had called it the landica, so why didn't they use that term? Well, maybe it was just seen as too vulgar at the time, but then there was also the more respectable Greek term, kolomela. So why not use that one? Why bring in an Arabic loanword unless both of these terms had been lost to the dustbin of history? Could that really be? Had Europeans really forgotten about the clitoris? It's a strange thing to think that something so important to women and to anyone hoping to pleasure them could be forgotten. But see, that's just it. They weren't trying to please women anymore. Pleasure in bed had become a no-no. See, the influence of Galen had already cast doubt on the clitoris among physicians, and Neoplatonic philosophy had a tendency to privilege the purity of intellectual ideas over worldly sensual pleasures, but it was really the Christian church that put the nails in the coffin. With sexual pleasure considered a sin, the act of sex became focused on reproduction alone, and whether it was enjoyable for the parties involved was basically irrelevant. In fact, it was probably better from a spiritual standpoint if it was minimally enjoyable. Now, for the male, it had to at least be pleasurable enough to achieve ejaculation, otherwise you just can't get the deed done, right? But for the female, pleasure was not necessary at all. The ideal female partner from the church's point of view was someone who submitted to impregnation, like Mary accepting the seed of God. You know, just a ray of light down from heaven, and presto, there's a bun in the oven. No need to knead that dough, no need to warm it up. Just pop it in like a frozen pizza roll and you are good to go. That's the ideal, according to the church at least. Now that doesn't mean that nobody in medieval Europe had any fun during sex. Far from it. It only means that fun was forbidden in respectable conversation. Behind closed doors or in body taverns, there was no doubt plenty of fun going on, and clever illusions likely remained for example, in Chaucer's 14th century Canterbury Tales, there's a story of a miller's wife who appears to dupe a male suitor into cunnilingus as he stands beneath a window with his eyes closed waiting for her kiss. She sticks her bare bottom out the window instead, and the suitor jumps back, having, quote, felt a thing all rough and long. Now, the thing all rough and long might perhaps refer to an aroused clitoris, maybe? But if so, it is veiled in indirect language and easily misinterpreted. 
and such indirect language may have been understood by those in the know, but it's no help to the ignorant. It doesn't teach a new generation about female anatomy, rather it casts it into the shadows. Now as a culture, knowledge of female pleasure ceased being passed on publicly, and privately it likely grew more and more isolated, incomplete, and vague. Surely women would discover and rediscover it on their own bodies, even during this time, and daring lovers might do so as well if they just didn't care that much about the norms of society. But more and more it would come to be a vague notion without specific words for it, you know, just that place down there, X marks the spot. They might know that there was something there worth paying attention to, but the clitoris as a concept, and as a part of the culture's sexual repertoire, had disappeared. Perhaps not entirely, though. There is frequent reference among scholars today that medieval Europeans, like Etios centuries earlier, thought that female orgasm was necessary for conception. Remember I told you this was going to come back. And if so, if that's true that medieval Europeans thought this, then they would surely have paid attention to all the ways to make that special little tremor happen, including the most reliable way, stimulation of the clitoris. However, I tried to track down what the actual evidence for this belief was, and as far as I can tell, all of it seems to derive from a single legal reference in a document called the Fleta, also called the Common Law of England, which was completed around 1290 CE. Now the reference in the Fleta is pretty darn indirect and takes some real mental gymnastics to connect it to orgasm. In the first book of the second volume, in a section discussing sexual assault, the book explores whether certain acts can be considered rape. If, however, the woman should have conceived at the time alleged in the appeal, it abates, for without a woman's consent, she could not conceive. In other words, the Fleta is saying that a woman cannot get pregnant unless she consents or gives into the act, which has been taken to mean that she experiences pleasure. That's a little bit of tortured logic in my opinion, a little bit of a leap, and to further leap all the way to orgasmic pleasure is for me just beyond conception, pun intended. Now what's worse is the fact that this notion of women's consent as necessary for pregnancy is being discussed here in the legal context of rape charges. That just calls the whole thing into question, doesn't it? I mean, it smacks of what U.S. Republican politician Todd Akin said in 2012 of assaulted women. If it's a legitimate rape, the female body has ways to try to shut that whole thing down. In other words, the medieval fleta, like Todd Akin, may have provided an out for rapists by invoking a mistaken understanding of the female body. It may not have reflected much of anything about common medieval knowledge of female pleasure, just like today, Todd Aiken doesn't represent most of us. In fact, the Fleta may have specifically represented just how poorly female pleasure was understood at the time. 
Now, perhaps there's something I've missed here. I'm no historian. I could be completely wrong. So take my words with a hefty grain of salt. But even if we concede that medieval Europeans did in fact believe this about conception, well, it still wouldn't provide evidence of understanding of the clitoris because actually they had an entirely different concept of female pleasure at the time. Speaking of women in the Middle Ages, historian Ruth Mezocaras writes, Women could have orgasm, but they had it as a result of penetration. They were thought to derive their pleasure from the male partner's ejaculation into the womb. In other words, Caras is saying, in the minds of medieval Europeans, female pleasure comes from penetration, and the height of pleasure can only be achieved by passively receiving what a man provides, his seed. It seems that medieval men thought female orgasm came from the cum shot, and without even an internet full of porn, to mislead them into believing that. And there's no place in this mindset for the clitoris. It's unnecessary for pleasure, which comes from penetration and insemination. And anyway, pleasure is a no-no according to the church. So there's just no need to speak of the clitoris. It's irrelevant, so irrelevant that you might as well just forget about it. And so they did. And that is how we get to Leonardo da Vinci. By the time of the Renaissance, European culture as a whole had forgotten the clit. Yes, no doubt some knew about it, that place right there, but there was no word for it, no concept of it. So much so that Leonardo da Vinci, master of human anatomy, simply did not think to depict it. It's almost like that bunk thing they say about the Native Americans when Europeans first arrived, that their ships were so far beyond their conception that they literally couldn't see them. Well, that's actually not true of the Native Americans, I'm sure. But the basic idea behind it is sound enough. When you have no concept of something, it's difficult to notice it. You just can't pick out the signal from the noise because you don't know what you're looking for. Da Vinci did not depict the clitoris because he could not see it. He didn't know what he was looking at. And people of the time didn't know what they were looking at either. For example, in 1486, the book which kicked off the witch-hunting craze in Renaissance Europe, the Malleus Maleficarum, or Hammer of Witches, was published, and its German author Heinrich Kramer appears baffled by female anatomy. His discussion of the so-called witch's teat is often taken to refer to the clitoris, which is so far outside his conception that he considers it abnormal, the mark of a witch in league with the devil. And just two decades later, in 1508, da Vinci sketches the drawing that we've been discussing. It, it, was, it was practically the day after. And just a few more decades after that, in 1543, Flemish anatomist Andreas Vesalius publishes a book of anatomy following in the Galenic tradition of the vagina as inverted penis with no clitoris to be found. And also, incidentally, the book depicted fictitious blood vessels leading excess menstrual fluid up to the mammary glands to become breast milk. And tellingly, da Vinci 
has other drawings that show exactly these same fictitious blood vessels, suggesting that there was some kind of shared mindset at the time in Europe about female anatomy. Now, just how far that mindset was from understanding the clitoris is revealed by what happened next. In 1545, French physician Charles Estienne dissected a female corpse and with a trembling hand dropped the scalpel to the ground with a clang as he gasped and rushed to announce a startling new discovery. It was, wait for it, the clitoris. He called it a woman's shameful member, hmm, and he gave it a urinary function, but he had found it. Then, hot on his heels in 1559, Realdo Colombo said, wait, no, he had discovered it, the clitoris. He called it the Amor Veneris, or Love of Venus, and says that it is preeminently the seat of woman's delight. And he further remarks that, if you touch it, you will find it rendered a little harder. Now, I don't know about you, but I absolutely love the picture of these two Renaissance explorers duking it out over who actually discovered this new territory when people of ages previously had totally known about it and when women of their very same day were probably standing by like, um, yeah, duh, even though they hitherto hadn't had a word to express their lady lump. But nevertheless, it was significant because no longer just X marks the spot, the clitoris now had a name. It became a concept. It existed again for the culture. People could see it again. And had da Vinci lived just a little longer, he would have seen it too. But he didn't. Da Vinci had died several decades earlier in 1519, and so none of his drawings show that crucial new discovery. His drawing, which the Vagina Museum hails as the first complete picture of the female sexual organ unique for its time, gives no suggestion of the love of Venus, no hint of the Basar, no memory of the Landis or the Columela, no knowledge of Nishi Libi. The clitoris had been forgotten. And you know, on reflection, it almost makes me see da Vinci's other works in a different light. I mean, looking at the Mona Lisa again, with that mysterious smile, I wonder what she's thinking. Whoever sat for that portrait, did she know something that he didn't? I mean, as a woman sitting before male gaze, her own body yet an undiscovered country to all but herself, had she discovered what even Leonardo da Vinci did not know. With that subtle smile, was she mocking him? We may never know. She was. She totally was. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. I hope that you learned something today. I certainly did. If you like what we're doing here on this show, you can support us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing. You can also pledge on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a Sumerian stud unfailingly bringing his partner to climax, or as a sexy Mona Lisa salaciously snickering at her painter, or whatever you want. 
I'll make you look awesome, I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. Next time, we're going to keep going with the theme of all the ways that women have been misunderstood through history, and we're going to have some short shorts this month on hysteria, as well as a short history of love between women. At least that's the plan. We'll see how it turns out, so stick around. It's going to be good. All right, folks, I'll see you next time. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.